Hi, I'm Judith Dreyer. Thank you for joining me for this podcast series, The Holistic Nature of Us. My intent is to take us, you and I, into a better understanding of the concepts behind our holistic nature and how that ties directly to the holistic nature of the world around us. How can we connect the dots in practical ways that we are nature and nature is in us? I will be featuring authors and educators, practitioners and others whose passion for this earth helps us create bridges. We'll see what's trending, what's relevant to our world today, not just for land use, but to connect the dots between ourselves and nature. It's time for practical action and profound interchange so our natural world is valued once again. And today, I'm delighted to introduce you to Chris McHugh. She's the leader of the BFA Hartford, Connecticut chapter, and BFA is the Biofood Nutrient Association. So welcome, Chris. How are you? Good morning, Judith. Thank you for having me. I'm well. Great. Chris, let's start with the BFA. Could you just tell us what it stands for? Sure. So the BFA stands for the Bionutrient Food Association, which is sort of a combining of the words, um, giving the indi indication that biologically available nutrition is what we're aiming for. That's, that's a very uh, interesting combination because we take our food for granted, but we're starting to learn that some of our practices are not creating nutrient-rich food for us. Uh, tell, tell me how you got into this field. Um, I've been a home gardener for many years, and I always knew that I wanted to practice organic gardening, and so I took out lots of books from the library. But uh, over the years, I found that my soil was not um, growing the type of food that I really wanted. I was having a lot of problems with insects eating my plants and certain plants that I just could not grow. Um, and it was about uh, the 2013 or maybe early in 2014, I was introduced to the Bionutrient Food Association through a friend of mine who introduced me to David Forster, who at that point in time was um, a soil chemist who was working with the, um, Dan Kittredge, who was the founder of the Bionutrient Food Association. And David actually came to my home and gave a talk to some of my friends and um, food co-op members, a group that I belong to. And um, so I was talking with him about some of the problems I was having in my garden. And he said, have you ever had your soil tested? Well, with all those great books I've been taking out on organic gardening, I don't think any of them really addressed soil chemistry. It was more about making things look pretty and growing things in unusual places and so anyway, David recommended that I send some soil out to Logan Labs in Ohio. That's the lab that the BFA works with. And so when my test came back, it showed that my soil was very low in boron and sulfur and some of the other trace elements. And what I didn't realize is just by the fact that I live here in Connecticut, our geology dictates that my soil will be low in boron and sulfur and certain other minerals. So um, many people will ask me, oh, why don't you just use the local extension? They're free or they're, you know, they're really cheap. And I, I, the, my only reason for saying I would not choose to use any of the local university or local extension labs is their test doesn't address a wide enough range of minerals and trace minerals. Um, I know from my own soil, I have excellent levels of calcium and calcium is super important in plant growth 
but without the boron in the soil, that calcium cannot move around up into my plants. So um, through this soil test process, I was able to get the natural rock minerals that I needed to add to my soil. So I amended it in, in May of 2014. And then I thought, okay, for the heck of it, I'm gonna replant these crops that I've not been able to grow before and I'll see what happens. And that year, for the very first time in October, I was able to harvest plants that I'd never been able to grow before. My particular issue was root crops. I could not grow carrots or beets or radishes. I tried every year for like 15 years. I tried hybrids, I tried open pollinated, I tried heirloom, none of it would grow for me. And it was all because of the boron and these other missing elements. That's a fascinating story. Um, I'm a master gardener, and we always recommend that people get a soil test. However, I did not realize the differences in some of the soil testing for the the wide range of trace minerals that we need. And these are trace trace minerals. But right. if Connecticut is lacking in general, then it, it would be wise to have a good soil test done so we can be successful and grow nutrient-rich crops. Right, right, because if those nutrients are not in our soil or they're not in an available form in our soil, then they will not be in our food. That and, is, yes, that's correct. Yeah. And, and we also know that certain farming practices and the use of synthetic fertilizers, etc., leaches some of those very minerals out of the soil. So they're even lacking from those practices, regardless right. of what they look at for the soil, correct? Right. Right, and there are many relationships between the different elements in the soil where certain elements enhance the performance of others, certain elements will tie up um, others in different chemical compounds, which then makes them unavailable. And I think a lot of the secret to unlocking all of these nutrients in our soil, along with having um, a proper balance of what's available nutrition, your soil has to be vibrantly alive. This is one of the things that is not talked about often enough, is we need a really robust population of insects and worms and biology, microorganisms, all these little things that they are the ones who are actually converting these rock minerals, these elements, and making them available to our plants to take up and use. That's how nutrition will wind up on our plate. That's that's interesting because, you know, the physical body is like that too, right? If we're yep. missing calcium or if we're missing magnesium, we start to see very specific symptoms arise. So, again, connecting the dots between the holistic nature of the world and the holistic nature of us, I think we're very good today talking about the body-mind-spirit connection, but I don't think we've made the connection that the soil has can operate on the same principles, and it must in order to provide quality, quality nutrition, strong, healthy plants. Um, so this is this is a great bridge that you've just shared with our with our listeners. Um, so tell me more about soil management and soil health. I know you have vast experience. There's a demo garden, etc. Well, actually, that I mean that's kind of one of my jokes. Is um, my vast experience was all. Um, wrong learning up until about you know four or five years ago when all of a sudden I had this epiphany over this one soil test where I thought oh my gosh I mean it was that simple I just needed to know 
about the minerals and start addressing the life in my soil. These things are fairly easily done. They are pretty inexpensive. This is one of the things that I love about the BFA is the message is high quality food should be accessible and available to everyone regardless of your socioeconomic status. Healthy food should not cost a ton of money. It does not have to. We have so many wonderful resources available to us locally. And um, so the process of growing healthier food, I noticed from it, that first year when I started with the remineralizing, the quali quality of my crops, the flavor of the vegetables and the herbs and the things that I'm growing has steadily improved. What most people don't realize is that flavor and nutrition are in correlation to each other. So oftentimes the foods that we're getting from grocery stores and sometimes even you know from farms and certainly from our own gardens don't have a lot of flavor. And so we find ourselves seasoning everything and adding sauces and dressings. We're forever adding salts and sugars. Those flavor compounds will show up naturally in foods that are growing and producing a higher level of nutrition. That's really interesting. I, I, I know you and I and many family members will often say, if we have to go to the supermarket for a tomato, especially this time of year, it has no flavor. Yes. And we, we, we miss the summer crops, the summer juiciness yep. of a tomato fresh from the garden, warmed by the sun, you know? Yep. Um, so that's, that's an interesting point to, to make. Um, so what else can you tell us about the, the fungi in the soil, that network that helps keep everything uh, healthy? Right. Well, um, the fungi in the soil is one of the parts of that, that living quality of our soil that most people are really unaware of. Um, oftentimes, if you uh, knock over a log or if you move some dead leafy material that's been on the ground, you'll see like white filaments and sometimes they'll be orange. There's different colors. They look like threads that are just sort of running off from the source of the wood or the leaves. Those are um, a form of fungi, and many people think those are actually bad, that you shouldn't see that. They feel like, oh, that's mold or that's something bad in my garden. That is actually a sign of healthy soil. You want to have lots of these things called mycorrhizal fungi. Um, you want to have tons of bacteria and little critters and insects. Um, the more life you have in your soil, the better. I've heard of mycorrhizal fungi being called the internet of the soil. Some people have heard that these uh, mycorrhizal fungi can run off from, for miles from their source and they'll connect plants or connect trees and, and they'll share signals from one plant or tree to another. But they're also mining for nutrients and water. So in a period of drought, all of those mycorrhizal filaments that can run off for many feet or many miles are bringing back moisture and nutrients to help your plant manage through whatever the weather is bringing to them. So the more disturbance we're doing, whether it's rototilling or it's you know taking your, your shovel out and flipping everything over, you're, you're really killing the structure and the life in the soil. So the least disturbance is, is what we need to be practicing. So would you recommend then to like put a cover crop uh, on your 
pathways so that you can keep that network going. Even if we walk on it, it's under the ground if we have clovers and vetches in our pathways in our garden. Do you recommend things like that? Absolutely. That's one of the really important things that we need to get away from the um, paradigm we seem to have all learned where your garden should be um, weed-free, you should see bare soil everywhere, and everything should be a nice little straight rose. Nowhere in nature do you see anything growing in a system like that. And if you look out in nature, you look out in a forest or in a pasture, People are not irrigating it. People are not uh, fertilizing it, and yet it grows fantastically, and it can manage itself through droughts and through periods of, of flooding and heavy rains. Um, so what we need to be doing in our gardens is copying the successful way that nature has of growing things and absolutely keeping your soil covered, whether it's in your walking paths or whether it's in your growing beds. Keeping it covered is, is super important. Roots in the ground is the best way to keep your soil covered all year round. So as you just pointed out, cover crops are a fantastic way. Not only are they keeping your soil covered, they're keeping life in your soil, they're feeding all the biology in your soil, and they're mining nutrients. Many of the plants, even some of our local native plants, which some people call weeds, can be used as a cover crop. Purslane and chickweed are two fantastic examples. Not only are they edible, they're highly nutritious, they'll grow very nicely in a low sort of a, a carpet, and they'll protect your soil from the drying effects of the sun and from erosion, from heavy rains. Plus, they're also, also helping to cycle nutrients, so they're really benefiting your, your plants that you're trying to grow. People often think that if we have weeds growing in our garden, they're competing and taking nutrients away from our plants. That is not necessarily the case. They can often be very helpful for you. Yes, and you've mentioned um, in a previous talk that I heard uh, that you gave um, is that our weeds are mineral powerhouses. Mm -hmm. And we know in the field of herbology, which is one of the, one of the paths that I walk, um, that the minerals in there while they might be small amounts, you're not talking about megadoses, they're in there in a complementary form within the plant so that they get utilized when we make a tea uh, out of them, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, nettles is the number one best uh, weed. I don't really love the word weed because it has negative connotations, but um, for, and nettles are fantastic. If you have stinging nettles growing on your property, you have one of the best nutrient sources available. Um, you should be cooking it and eating it yourself, and you should certainly be using it to, in your mulch, in your compost. You should be um, soaking it and you know removing the nutrients by making a tea of it, or you can ferment it. Um, that is another great way of adding and, and boosting the nutrient values. Um, dandelions is another one. You know, most people see dandelions and they're getting out the, the weeders and getting out the spray. They don't want to see those in their lawn. Dandelions have that lovely long taproot. They are mining minerals from deep down in your subsoil and bringing it up into the root zone of your plants. So they're just beneficial any way you want to look at it. Plus the dandelions are one of the very first things flowering I've had dandelions flowering around the base of my house since in February. 
So any warm days that our native pollinators might have tried to come out and, and look for food, dandelions are one of the very first food sources that they have. Yes, so, and it's also it's one of the very last ones they have, too, in the fall as they get ready right. for. Well, you brought up a couple of re really great points. I want to go back to purslane. Purslane mm -hmm. is like um, something I've been really excited about over the last couple of years. I understand Michael Pollan in his work states that purslane is one of the most nutritious foods on the planet and I've been pickling it so that I yes. can keep it through the winter in that form but in the summer I'll juice it and I will also add it to salads and stir fries uh, and people look at me at talks that I give it's like purslane really I've been pulling that out and that's a plant that I don't think there's much awareness over yet Right. Uh, stinging nettles is another really favorite plant of mine, and people will say, oh, stinging nettles, how can you possibly eat that? But all you have to do is steam it, and it's right. edible. It's inedible. And then whatever's left over, put in your compost pile you know, to, right. to, to help grow the nutrients. Um, I like what you said, too, about copying nature. Um, again, I'd, I'd love to see ga gardens with beautiful uh plants growing but also those cover crops really established there because we know that the nitrogen um, uh, what do you, fixing plants uh, really make a great addition to our soils. Right, right. Um, there's many different reasons to use cover crops. Um, it's something that I'm learning more about. I'm, I'm going to some lectures on. I just recently went to an excellent lecture given by a gentleman who works at Johnny's or who had just recently retired from Johnny's and he's been developing their cover crop program and it is amazing if you look at each individual plant for the nutritional value that it brings not only to us when we eat it but also to the nutritional value it's bringing to your soil <clears throat> excuse me you can really address nutrient deficiencies with the use of the cover crops that you choose. So, you know, most people think of using beans and peas, the legumes for the nitrogen fixing, but it goes much beyond that. There, there are so many different values that you can get. Uh, the dandelions and the nettles I know are high in calcium and, you know, eat each different herbal plant or um, the, the wild herbs and things, they just add so much benefit. And another thing that I really wanted to make sure to mention is you can bump up the nutrient values and you can bump up the microbiome level in your soil, the biology, by fermenting. I mean, you even mentioned it yourself that you'll pickle the purslane to preserve it so you can eat it over the winter. Um, the fermenting I'm talking about that we can do with our native wild plants um, is similar in process to how you would make sauerkraut. But instead of salt for the pickling part, you're going to use some brown sugar. And um, I learned this from techniques from Korean natural farming, which um, began through a friend of mine, um, Nigel Palmer. He has he and his wife have a school called the Institute of Sustainable Nutrition. And Nigel has been practicing and studying Korean natural farming for many years. And so he taught me to take a look at what um, native wild plants you have growing in your garden and look up the nutrition values of those and see what minerals they are strongest in. And then what you do is you take one part by weight of that plant and you can use the whole thing, what's above and below ground, 
to equal parts of brown sugar. I use organic brown sugar. And you put them into a glass or ceramic bowl and you start mashing and kneading on the plant with your hands, just kind of wringing it and squeezing it to break down the cell walls so that the plant juices come out. The plant juices will dissolve the brown sugar so then you pack it into your, you leave it into your, your crock or your glassware. You put a plate or something on it to keep the solids submerged and put a weight on it. And then you let it ferment. And I don't know the exact time frame. I know it's dependent on whether it's cool or warm in the room where you're doing it. You want it out of direct sunlight. And it's anywhere from two to three, maybe four weeks that you would let it ferment. Um, this can be found online if you do an internet search of Korean natural farming fermented plant juices. So at the end of the ferment period, you strain it, and the liquid that you have is shelf-stable. It will last for years, and the um, all of the mineral nutrients that were in the plant have now leached out from all that plant liquid, plus you have all the biology that was on the leaves of those plants. All of the different microorganisms, you've got the lactobacillus bacteria that's in the air all around us. So you have this super concentrated mix of the what's needed for the plant's um, digestive system, as I would call it, their microbiome, along with the nutrients, it's instant food for the plant. Wow, and, and do you use like a cup on a plant or you just take and sprinkle it over? Uh, this is the beauty of when you make these things, a tiny little amount goes a very long way. You're mm -hmm. using trace amounts. Mm -hmm. um, you would literally use one part of that to um, like a thousand parts water. Some of the different preparations are one part of the um, preparation to 500 parts water. I mean, there's a huge dilution of these things. So it could literally be a teaspoon or two in your watering can, and then you water it on your soil as a drench. Or if you do foliar spraying, which is an excellent way, it's, it's misting nutrients and liquids onto your plants. Um, you could put a teaspoon or two into your foliar sprayer and then mist that onto your plants. How so again, interesting. we don't need to buy a lot of products. We can make a lot of things for ourselves, just available from what's right in our garden spaces. Well, that's what I like about practical action. Uh, these things we can find easily. You gave us some great resources. Um, that's a great tip for uh, my listeners today. Can you can you talk about inoculating seeds as well? I know the BFA has a seed program, and I'd like to share more information about seed saving seed starting with our listeners. Right. Um, my particular chapter, the Hartford Area Chapter of the Bionutrient Food Association, um, really focuses a lot on seeds because it's a it's a hobby of mine. It's something I am really interested in, and it makes sense to me to address the quality of our food starting right at the very beginning, and that's with our seeds. Um, I learned from uh, one of the early lectures that I went to by Dan Kittredge that the seeds that we consumers actually get in our little packages are somewhere around the fifth or sixth level um, when the seeds are actually sorted for their, their quality. Um, I've done some research recently and discovered that um, the, when, when seed producers are growing out a particular crop specifically for the seeds to be used for people to grow, um, they're sorted by a seed test weight or by the, the high density of the individual seeds. 
And so the first level, the highest quality seeds are set aside for breeding. And then um, there, there's different levels that go down from there. And it's literally about the fourth or fifth selection that is what is used for the growing stock for our farmers. And so we get what's left over after that. So we're not starting out with number one top quality seeds um, if we're only relying on what we're buying in little packages. It's really important, and I'm trying to inspire more people to save their own seeds. I know it can be daunting. You don't need to save every single thing that you're growing. Just pick one or two things that are easy to start with. But everyone should be doing a little something with saving their own seeds just for the comparison of it. You may have noticed when you do buy packages of seeds, which I do as well, um, you open them up, make sure you dump them out in your hand or dump them out into a, a, a dish of some sort and notice the variation in sizes. You will see some seeds that are very plump and you know large and then you'll see others that are kind of smaller. Maybe they'll be a little flat or concave. Sort your seeds, select for quality right from the beginning. Only use the biggest, fattest, plumpest seeds. It is okay to pitch out the others. If you want to try sprouting them to feed them to your chickens or just throw them out in your compost, whatever you want to do with them. But I would not bother planting seeds that are shrunken or super small. They are not going to grow plants for you that will be able to reach their full potential of growth. So number one, you've selected for quality, quality by taking out the largest seeds. So then when you seed either in your seed trays with your peat pots or whatever you're using, or you plant them out in your garden, if it says on the package the seeds should germinate in 7 to 14 days, but you notice at day 3 you've already got seeds sprouting, those are excellent. Those are keepers. Those seeds had so much energy in them that those ones germinated and those plants emerged first. By day 5 you may be seeing some more. Those are keepers. Anything that germinates after day seven, I would probably not use unless I was really desperate. So my recommendation is always plant more seeds than you actually want for the crop space in your garden. That way you can select for quality. The very first seeds to emerge are the ones that you wanna focus the most attention on because they had a lot of energy, which meant they had a lot of nutrients in there. The ones that are latecomers, they are not showing me that they have as much potential to reach their fullest growth potential. So I would not even bother planting those ones in my garden. Interesting. Again, we don't have a lot of knowledge about this. I don't think most home growers understand the difference in quality right. of seed and level of seed. Is that true for uh, companies that offer heirloom seeds and organic seed? I would assume so, but I don't know 100% for sure. I know there are different levels of production. There are home gardeners and small family farms who are producing seed that they are selling to the seed companies. Um, I think, I, I don't know that they are as involved in breeder stock. I think it's more the um, commercial production operations that are growing mass quantities of acreage for the seeds. I think those are the ones that are more um, sorted into those many levels. Mm -hmm. um, I actually know a couple of um, market gardeners and um, small family farms 
who I, I have recently learned are selling some of their seeds to a few different seed companies. So this is going to be part of my research that I'm ongoing with to find out the process, de depending on the source. Um, I know for me personally, if I'm going to order from a seed catalog, I'm looking for varieties that were grown here in the Northeast region. I feel it's important, again, selecting for quality, to start with seeds that are going to get into my garden and hit the ground running. The less challenges my seeds have to reaching their full potential, the better. So, I mean, a lot of our seed stock is actually coming from out in the Pacific Northwest and down south. Well, those seed varieties may do really, really well there in their climate and their soil geology, but they might not be as happy here with my climate and my soil geology, soil chemistry. And so, to my way of thinking, that's just a little bit of a challenge. There, as soon as you put the seed in the ground, it has to get used to a whole different microbiology that may be living here and different organisms and different nutrients and different weather. To me, those are things that set my plants back a little bit. How interesting. I, I think you gave us, um, I love to end uh, my podcast with three tips, but I think you gave us uh, at least four or five uh, <laughs> points that are really, really important about using seed. And, of course, this is springtime and people are buying seed. So I think what you have to share with us is this really, really timely. And, I, again, I can't say enough about folks getting a soil test to begin with because yes. then that will help under you know put some of the uh, uh, ideas that you gave us today some of the practices you gave us today into into practice so to speak uh, right. so that we can be successful gardeners and what I loved about the talk that you gave recently at a local library is that you showed us pictures and you, your own experience is beautiful thriving healthy diverse plantings that you do every year and you grow nutrient-dense food crops for yourself and your family. Yes, um, I don't I wouldn't say I'm there. I don't feel that it's a destination. I don't I don't know that there's any one person who could say, okay, I've done it. Everything is at the peak of nutrient density and I've arrived. I think it's always a work in progress and we can continue to build on it. Um, one other thing I would definitely want to point out before we end is you know, for, for gardeners here in New England, we can only grow and, and harvest food a few months out of the year. So what do you do the rest of the year? Or, you know, if you don't have enough space to grow everything your family needs, or maybe you just don't have the time to garden and you, and you need to be just focusing on the fact that you're a consumer at this point in time. It's really important for anyone who eats to be aware of what are good soil practices, what soil practices produce higher level nutrition, because all of us need to be having these conversations with our grocers, our grocery store managers, in the produce departments, um, at farmers markets, at farm stands. We all need to be talking about this because we humans have proven we can grow anything, anywhere, in any medium. We're growing food in the air. We're growing it in water. We're growing it in soilless mediums. But my question is, does it have the nutritional content that my body needs to keep me healthy? I feel like societally, if we look out into the world around us, we humans are eating more than ever. We have access to foods like never before, all year round, in season, out of season, but we are sicker than ever. 
we really need to be talking about the health of our soil and for people to be able to know how to define that and have conversations with their grocers and, and food growers is really important. It is, and Doug Tallamy in his book, Bringing Nature Home, points out that we've created or we've lost one-third of our topsoil on the planet just in the last hundred years. So talking about soil is an important discussion. Uh, yes. And taking practical action is timely. And we yes. can do that one garden at a time with a little bit of knowledge, with, a, uh, with soil testing, with a little bit of understanding of seed, and to understand that as we need quality food, the soil needs quality food. Yes. And there's our bridge to understanding nature again in a more uh, holistic way. Uh, Chris, do you have any contact information for my listeners? Yes. Um, actually, um, the parent organization, the Bionutrient Food Association, has um, a website with links to all their local chapters. We have chapters in, I think, at least a dozen states. Um, it is bionutrient.org. Uh, they also have links to video and audio archives. One of the amazing things about the Bionutrient uh, Food Association is every fall they hold a two-day soil and nutrition conference that brings together great minds, um, thinkers, and learners all to do with soil health and human health and, and the connection of the two. And um, I had not attended a lot of you know different conferences and workshops over the years until I started attending these. But in talking to the other, whether it's the presenters or talking to the other attendees, the constant thread I was hearing was how amazing the, um, the presenters, these scientists and these researchers and these professors who come and, and do their talk on their latest research or the book that they wrote, they'll actually attend each other's workshops. The conversation continues in the lunchroom, in the hallway, and in each other's classrooms. It is such a convergence of people who are working together in that soil health and human health um, connection. And I love that the BFA makes um, past conferences available to people who couldn't attend. Uh, so anyone can go online and look up these amazing speakers and watch their videos. And by all means, if you can you know, check out the schedule of the conference that's coming up for this year and future years, I would highly recommend attending these conferences because as I said, the conversations that happen in the lunchroom where you're sitting at the table with giants in the field of soil health and nutrition, and they want to hear from you and the other people as much as you want to hear from them. It's, it's amazing and so inspirational. It sounds it. Uh, I know I'm inspired. Yep. And also you can find out about my chapter by going on uh, the bionutrient.org. Just look under chapters. There's a section for local chapters and you can find anything about how to get in touch with our chapter. We have a Facebook discussion group and page. We have a YouTube channel ourselves. Lots of great free resource videos. We have a blog and we also have an email list. So you can contact me, ask any questions through that. Wonderful. Well, I am just uh, delighted with our discussion today, and I can't thank you enough for joining us at The Holistic Nature of Us, and I hope my listeners feel as inspired as I do by your talk and your very practical advice. So thank you again, Chris, for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me. 
This is Judith Dreyer, author of At the Gardens Gate book and blog. For more information, go to my website, judithdreyer.com, and you will find the podcast listed as well as a transcript uh, available for this podcast uh, and further information on classes, etc. I always like to end with a quote, and I've chosen Paul Hawken, environmentalist and author, who reminds us, sustainability, ensuring the future life on Earth, is an infinite game, the endless expression on behalf of all. So goodbye for now, and enjoy your day.